Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, and welcome to season two of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives, and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking with Oliver Barnett. Oliver is a nutritional therapist, herbalist, and is founder of the London Clinic of Nutrition. I became aware of Oliver when I was attending the Integrative Healthcare and Applied Nutrition Summit in 2018, where his clinic was presented with the Outstanding Contribution to the Community Award. In this episode, we touch upon his integrative approach to complex conditions. So, without further ado, Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Oliver, you are now highly qualified in the area of nutrition and functional medicine. Where did your interest in this field of nutrition begin? I think like a lot of people, it was from Patrick Holford's Optimum Nutrition Bible. We just, we just randomly reading that and then that sort of spawned an interest um, in it. And that, my, my wife was at the time doing a homeopathy degree as well. So I think as a um, sort of coming from that sort of a you know, house of um, people involved in, you know, in complementary medicine, that's probably the reason. Right, okay, yeah, Pat- Patrick Holford seemed to have uh, influenced many people coming up in this field, I think, especially because he was one of the founders of ION, I believe, the Institute of Optimum Nutrition. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it seems like most people will, will say that it's that was their major influence in, in starting. I think, some, I think some, actually a lot of therapists as well, I think, have it, that their, their reason for starting out is because they, they managed to heal themselves. Yes. Um, thankfully, I, I was okay health-wise generally, so... It wasn't that that wasn't the route that I'd, I'd gone down for that reason. So what was it with nutrition and nutritional therapy that was particularly interesting to you? Uh, it just made, it just made a lot of sense. Um, I think it was I think originally I just did the course because, you know, I thought this is interesting. My wife was doing a course. and I thought, oh, I'll just do a course as well. You know, uh, why, why not? Yeah. Um, and then, I, you know, I was I was working at the time in the property industry and um and i sort of thought well i'll just have i'll just do it you know just for extra knowledge because it's interesting and then many years you know some after many years of sort of juggling two jobs um i decided you know take the plunge and do it and do it full time um and make more of a career out of it and ditch you know ditch doing working property and i think that um working in this industry has been much more fulfilling uh maybe not necessarily financially fulfilling but certainly more fulfilling and helping helping people transform their lives Fantastic. And uh, do you have a particular specialism in this industry? Um, I, obviously, I didn't want to start started, but, um, <laughs> but but I think now um, now we, we you know as a clinic we've built up a reputation. The sort of often I sort of coin the term treating the untreatable. So um, treating sort of complex chronic illness, um, uh, unexplained illness, Lyme disease, mold illness, severe complications of digestive disorders, autoimmune disease, that sort of stuff um we do get you sort of run-of-the-mill patients you know but uh, i think but a lot of the work we do is um dealing with quite complex cases and is that because you were searching for those those kind of complex cases or do those cases just end up coming to you 
when nothing else worked? Um, I think I think it's more like careful what you wish for because I used to get a lot of like digestive cases and hormones and Hashimoto's and, and, and you know thyroid stuff, and I was getting really bored, and I thought, oh. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm not, not another digestive case. Well, I asked the universe for something a bit more interesting, and and, I, and then I, I was careful what you wish for. And then, <laughs> relatively soon later, I I um we just started to get a lot of these really complex cases. And I think it was, you know, you know, there was sort of um, a conference I went to about five years ago, organised by Rio Health on Lyme disease. And I think I've been treating people for Lyme, but not actually knowing it was Lyme. Right. Um, and then this this conference sort of, you know, sort of highlighted. To me, this was a real problem, and and then we, you know, then I thought, oh right, well, you know, I've been treating these people happily for Lyme, but I never really gave it a name, and I think a lot of these people have Lyme, and then started to get more more um, aware of it, um, and you know, improving my knowledge, and you know, sort of, and we've we've now become had quite a reputation for uh, among some of those complex illnesses, um, treating people for Lyme disease. So for the listeners, what is Lyme disease? Because I, I was unaware that it was, it was prevalent within the UK. I, I know it's quite prevalent in the US. Um, Lyme, Lyme disease is, is, a, um, is a caused by a bacterial infection. Um, and the bacteria is called Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, Lyme is after the area in Connecticut, in Lyme in America, where it was discovered. And burgdorferi is named after the man that discovered the bacteria. Um, and you tend to get it traditionally through like tick bites, but you can get it from mosquitoes and sandflies and spider bites. Um, and, and also through sexual transmission as well, um, although more more research is needed there. But no, it is prevalent in the UK um, and it's pretty prevalent throughout the UK, whether you're in Richmond Park or in, in parks in Surrey, or uh, obviously Scotland is quite a hotbed for Lyme as well for ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it it is a real problem, and uh, it, it seems to me that you know every week people are coming into the clinic from all different locations and saying they've had tick bites and not feeling so well, um, and obviously some people get it abroad as well, um, and even mosquito bites. Sometimes patients get you know tons of mosquito bites. I've had it from people who've been to Thailand, lots of mosquito bites, and they come back and they've got it, they've got it for that through that source. Because I, I suppose it's one of those things where do you think it's potentially underdiagnosed as an illness? Yeah, very much so. The current methodology for diagnosing on the NHS isn't great. Um, and the testing, there isn't really a perfect test for it at all. So it's really a clinical diagnosis and, and taking a very good case history with the patient that really helps um, separate whether, whether you believe the patient has Lyme or not. So when people come to you, um, how is your clinic different to others that are out there? Um, I think I think that you know, a lot of practitioners op- operate in um in isolation working on their own uh maybe a little bit maybe some admin support or, or something but mm-hmm. generally people don't as teams um and i, I think that, that could be quite isolating and i think with the clinic about three years ago i decided that i was killing myself seeing 50 patients a week and i thought you know i've got to do something different otherwise mm-hmm. i'm going to end up, end up one of my patients um and i was started working with a, a nice nice young lady called nishta and um it was just the two of us, and then my wife was helping us out with the admin and what have you, and and then sort of here we are, sort of three years later now, with with, with twenty of us and working sort of collaboratively as a team. Um, so that's quite unique in Europe, in UK, maybe in Europe as well, um, as a sort of an integrated collaborative functional medicine clinic, uh, which combines you know naturopaths and herbalists and nutritionists um, and people with, with radionics and homeopathy as well, and and a decent admin admin support team. Uh, dealing with admin inquiries and all the testing and what have you, and I think I think on 
maybe on busy months, you know, we might have, you know, sort of three, maybe three, 400 patients going through the clinic. Um, wow. Okay. So yeah, it's grown in three years quite, quite a lot. Massively, massively. I think from three to 20 is quite a substantial growth in this, in this industry anyway. Yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned radionics there, but I'm unfamiliar with the term. Radionics is a pre, pre-runner to bioresonance. So before bioresonance existed, mm-hmm. people used to use radionics. Um, and the particular homeopath in our team uses radionics because it tends to offer better accuracy than, than bioresonance. Right, okay. Um, so it's, it's a quite an old school method of doing it. It's quite labor intensive. Um, and so he does. he has actually now got a really good bioresonance machine, which he does. He sort of combines that with. Um, so he does a mixture of the two. When people come to see you most often, do you find like a lot of the conditions that you see are lifestyle related or is it these co- kind of complex conditions where it is through, as you said before, in the example of Lyme disease, a tick bite or another factor? Well, I think, I think lifestyle is within all of this because, you know, you can get bitten by a tick and it could have, have no effect whatsoever. And often people get bitten 20 years ago and then it has, not, has no effect for 20 years and then they have a stressful event, a series of stressful events or one chronic or one chronic stress or a series of stressors and then they they find that their immune system has lost immune tolerance and mm-hmm. you know, something occurred maybe like a, a, a viral load or parasitic load or a bacterial load which the body was happily dealing with then becomes something the body can't deal with. They lose immune tolerance and then they, that's when they, they really start struggling. So I think everything is, everything, lifestyle is everything to do with health. Right, okay. You're going to have to excuse my ignorance here when I ask this question. With glandular fever and things of that nature, is that the case there? Because it seems like a lot of students seem to get this at periods of very high stress. Yeah. And that's Epstein-Barr primarily, I think, is the virus involved. Yeah, and also it's often called the kissing disease, isn't it? So you yes. can it can it can be passed, you know, well, effectively by kissing, um, you know, and, and in a very you know social you know, social contact. But again, you know, Epstein Barr virus um, infection. Some people, you know, it's it's pretty ubiquitous EBV, and it, you know, we've all come into contact with it at some point in our life. And again, I think when when we're at a low, like you say, when you've got a lot of had a lot of stress or a series of stressors, it it, it can then take hold. Um, and I think, you know, if you tested most people, uh, especially if you just did a simple IgG antibodies test, you probably find the vast majority of people would test positive for IgG antibodies. So they've had exposure at some point. I think I remember reading recently, I think, it, I think it's 90% of us are, are, are infected with EBV. Wow. Okay. I did not know that statistic. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I don't know why I read that the other day, but I mean, it doesn't that doesn't surprise me? Mm-hmm. Um, it may actually have been in um, a, this book called An Epidemic of Absence, which is a book about autoimmunity and allergy, and I think it was in that book. That is that is one I'll have to note down and put in the show notes. Yeah, one of my, one of the best books I've ever read. That is okay. That's a real testament to it, then. Great. Yeah, that's incredible. Life changing book. You've written about uh, detoxification before, and I've seen an article by you. What does detox mean to you, and why do you think this is important? I think that what it means to me is 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 that you're just supporting the body's natural processes of elimination, and what we what we what's referred to as biotransformation, which is turning sort of nasty little substances into stuff that can be easily excreted, you know, by the bowels or the mm-hmm. kidneys or the liver. Um, and, you know, normally the body does this pretty well. Um, but 
you know, if you've got, say, a genetic predisposition and you've got quite a high level of a particular toxin, and, you know, there's thousands of toxins out there. We've, you know, we're exposing more and more every year. Um, and sometimes there comes a tipping point and the body just can't deal with all these things. And, you know, so it's a bit like you take the, the metaphor of a bathtub and a drain, you know, and the, the liquid coming into the bathtub, maybe the toxins and the drain is your detox capacity. If you've got tons of stuff coming into the bathtub and your drain is not working very well, you're going to get an overflowing bathtub. And I think a lot of people get the situation where they get an overflowing of toxins and the body can't handle them. And I think <clears throat> it starts with the bowels. You know, if you're not having, you know, two to three bowel movements a day, that for me is, you know, to me is, is, is effectively a sign that you're constipated. And if you're constipated, you're not gonna you're not gonna get rid of toxins as well as as, as well as someone uh, who isn't constipated. And then if you're if you're finding you're not going to the loo enough, then the next organ organ elimination in in the sort of the chain is going to bear the brunt, and that will often be the liver. Yes. Um, and the you know, your most classical sort of toxins that we see in the clinic would be things like heavy heavy metals, uh, mycotoxins from mold. Um, environmental toxins like pcbs or or, or you know or, or things like bpa in plastics mm -hmm. um or things like you know so or environmental toxins such as you know organophosphates um and the sort of toxins you get in things like varnishes and paints and that and that sort of stuff uh oh and glyphosate yeah you should always mention glyphosate i guess because that that obviously would impair intestinal permeability and that again is another toxin that can affect people do you find that the the accumulation of these toxins end up producing clinical symptoms when you test for them and the removal of them seems to reduce symptoms or is it just something which adds to the underlying condition? No, I think it's really significant. I mean, if you said to me from a physical medicine perspective, what, what are the underlying causes in people's health? If I had to pick two things, I would say infections and toxins. Um, right. And I find that you know not every toxin you can test for because there's thousands of, but most of the most prominent ones you can test for in some way, shape, or form if you want to. Um, and then you can retest for them afterwards. So after you follow a detox protocol, you can then retest for them. A, the patient's feeling better, but B, have you got all the toxins out of the body that you're, that you're trying to eliminate? Yes. And quite often the answer is yes. You know the patient feels better, the levels are at a reasonable level, um, and your your work is done. And then the patient then has to have a maintenance program of some of some sort. But I think, you know, we can't live in a bubble and we're, it's only going to get worse. You know, I think I, I, something like hundreds of thousands of more toxins were exposed to than we, even than we were sort of 70 years ago. Yes. And, you know, we can't avoid everything. But, you know, it's about damage limitation. You know, it's things like you know, reducing EMF exposure, you know, using safe materials in, in, your, de in your dental work, um, living in a house that you think is pretty dry, and doesn't have water damage. Um, trying to ensure that you know you, you're not exposed to too much plastics, and you use glass or stainless steel containers. Um, you, and trying to use not to use tins where you can avoid it, and use cartons where you can. And is that because the the BPA in tins and the kind of xenobiotics and phytoestrogens and plastics, which cause the problem there? Yeah, exactly, and especially coconut milk because BPA binds to fat quite well. So I tend to use the Grace brand from from Amazon because it's um it's probably the best tasting one. There's no additives in it, and it's in a carton, oh, and it's quite cheap as well. So that's always a key one to be avoiding um tins with um coconut milk. Um, and is that Tetra Pak? Is that the? Uh, I think so. I don't know. Okay. I mean, 
I don't know. Um, I don't know which particular brand does the packaging for them, but it's it's like a carton. Yes. Okay. Um, Grace is brilliant. It tastes. The best thing for me, you know, is that it tastes. It's the best tasting one on the market. It's like super super thick. Um, so I think those are the more common um, toxins that you know that, that, that it's useful to to avoid. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of infrared sauna. Yes. Um, and um, I use a company called Get Fit in um, the showroom based in Radlett. It's probably the only full body infrared um, device on the market. They make them like cocoons or or it looks a bit like a sleeping bag or a mat. And I find that invaluable. You know, I think a for working with patients, but really B is as an insurance policy for your health. You know, I've got one at home and, you know, I think that every home should have one really because it's just a way of helping improving, uh, putting light back into your body. You know, so effectively a form of light therapy. We don't spend enough time in the light. Um, you're putting photons back into the body uh, and improving, you know, cellular repair, mitochondrial function and, and, and detoxification. So that's quite a useful, quite a useful um, technique. Um being, being a sort of traditional naturopath, you know, I like I like things like coffee enemas as well, mm-hmm. which is obviously the mainstay of the Gerson therapy. Yes. Coffee enemas can be really useful. When you look at sort of stud, um, um, survey, patient surveys of people with complex chronic illness, the coffee enemas always seem to be in the top top five of the things that they, they like the most. Well, in terms of they like the most in the sense that they, they felt better, um, you know, have, for having them. Yes, it seems to be quite a controversial topic now, but I know that the coffee enema used to be in the Merck Manual, which is the traditional medical textbook. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, I think in the US, was the originally put me onto this. Wh- where did you come across it yourself? Did you find it in the literature where this seemed to be beneficial, or is there any literature to support its use? Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, Gerson had Gerson obviously did have his, his case. He had a lot of cases that you know, and he did with, um, with his own research. I mean, obviously, I was taught it when I did naturopathy, um, and I've done it on myself, obviously, to experience the benefits. And you know, I've done quite a lot of cleanses doing with, with coffee enemas, uh, and it's, it's quite useful. And I get my patients to use it. So, and my patients seem to really benefit. I always, you know, often say do it once or twice a week, and often they love it so much they do it five times a week. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Okay. Quite a plethora of things that we can leverage in order to remove these harmful substances and also kind of prevent exposure. What's your take on, for example, using cosmetics, deodorants, things like that? Are those things that we need to be mindful of as well? Yeah. I mean, people often say that, you know, only put in your body what you put in your mouth. Yes. Um, And there's some some reasonable ranges out there. you know, like things like Green People or Faith in Nature are quite quite nice at natural brands or um, Neil's Yard. Um, most stuff um, on the high street, you know, your clinics and your, you know, sort of main main brands like that, Longcombe and places like that. Obviously, you've got a whole heap of ingredients, which really you don't really want a whole heap of ingredients that look like they've come out of a chemistry set. Um, and you know, if you go onto an environmental working groups website. You can look at all these ingredients um, and find out what the risk factor is for them. Yes. Um, there's also a book called The Chemical Maze. I had that from years ago. I don't know if anyone still that's people still buying that one, but that, that was one of, my, one of the first books I bought on the subject. It was called The Chemical Maze, and it lists them all in there. 
Are there any lifestyle or supplementation protocols that seem to benefit the health of, of the majority of your patients? I suppose the one that springs to mind is in terms of a supplement is vitamin D as deficiencies so common in westernized populations. But what are your thoughts? I, I, I think it's right throughout the world. I mean, I, we have patients in California and Dubai and Qatar, you know, very hot places, and they're just as deficient, probably more deficient than people in the UK, which is probably a surprise to your audience. But, but, but the reason why is because these people in these very hot countries, they cover up all the time where they wear sunscreen and they go from one air, air conditioned building to another. So I tend to find this, I've actually seen some of the biggest deficiencies in people from California and, and like wow. Saudi Arabia and places like that. It's really quite surprising. Um, but, the, but the UK again is, you know, most, you know, everybody is vitamin D deficient unless they are supplementing. That, that's just, that's just the long and short of it. And I, you know, I really like patients to really be at around one, two, five for optimal levels um of, of vitamin d but i mean i know myself because i've got gene mutations in the vdr genes personally and unless i take less unless i take six thousand six to seven thousand i use a day i can't get above a hundred right so I, I i need to take about six or seven thousand a day and i often skip days and forget so i haven't taken any vitamin d for about a week now so i think probably tonight i'll probably take a mega dose of like fifty thousand i use um, <laughs> And I'll just, you know, some people do that. Some people just take a mega dose every week. Yes, well, you can get prescribed that. It's not unusual. It's a fat-soluble vitamin that will stay in your blood for a long time. So, yeah. I find that, you know, if you want, if you're getting coming down with the lurgy, then I find mega dosing vitamin D and vitamin A can be really useful. So, I mean, I'll do like 100,000 IUs of vitamin A and like 50,000 or more, or maybe even 100,000 IUs of both uh, as, as, as as a single dose can be really effective. One thing that I've seen on your website is the, the use of IV intravenous supplementation of various different nutrients. Now, not many people are aware that this even exists, let alone any potential benefits that it may have. Why do you use IV supplementation and what are its effects? I know there's multiple vitamins there. The weird thing is, I, I didn't even know this till I met the company that produced them, but actually it's really popular in Asia. Right. In like Thailand and Vietnam and china and places like that apparently there's lots of places you just walk down high streets and stuff and there's places doing ivs which i found really surprising to be honest but the guy who the guy who runs the company he's actually based out in the far east all the time anyway that's where he's, he bases himself obviously the company's in the uk but the owner's based out in the far east and yes yeah i mean we we um we we start using them because we find it intravenously you know your your absorption is much higher than say supplementally and then some patients don't really tolerate supplements very well. Mm-hmm. So we find those patients really benefit from uh, having the IVs. But there's things like when you're doing metal sort of metal detoxes, like high-dose vitamin C and high-dose glutath- glutathione is very useful. And glutathione tends to be very poorly absorbed uh, orally. It's much better absorbed um, in, in an IV. Um, and also, you know, a big part of, say, you know, like Linus Pauling's work was, you know, high-dose vitamin C therapy for cancer. So... You know, vitamin C can knock out any pathogen out there. You know, it can treat any virus, it can treat any any form of pathogen, and can um, you know, get rid of any toxin. And it's very um, you know, very good for the immune system. So some people, you know, will do things like having 75 to 100 grams of vitamin C at a time intravenously, and it can work really well for uh, a for high pathogen loads, but also for cancer. Uh, we have some patients, you know, coming for 25 grams at a time just for high viral loads. 
So it's it's it, there's a lot of use in 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 these um in these infusions. Yes, because I understand, like especially with vitamin C, even though it's water soluble, you get to a certain level of bowel tolerance, and that can be for some people up to like one thousand milligrams, which is only a gram. So getting the IV, I suppose you bypass all those processes, which may be limiting its absorption. Yeah, you don't really. I mean, you don't really get loose bowels in IVs. I mean, some people's bowel tolerance might be two grams of vitamin C orally. Some might be fifteen grams, but. Mm-hmm. You're never going to get most people are around, around about 10 grams, but you're never really going to be able to get to sort of comfortably for most people 10, 15, 20, 30 grams unless you have it as an IV. Um, you could do it liposomally, but that'd be very expensive buying, you know, like Altrin C, you get 30 in a pack and it's like 50 quid. That'd be your 30 grams of vitamin C, but an expensive way of doing it. Yeah, I suppose it's the same with glutathione as well. I know there's liposomal glutathione you can buy, it, although I don't know the absorption rates in comparison to taking it IV. Yeah, I mean, the companies that obviously that produce it, they say, I mean, some companies, one company out there that claims it's, it's more, even better than the um, the IV, which I don't don't really necessarily agree with. And and I guess for experience, I've had people on the liposomal stuff, which I do use with patients to top it up. But I often, I've often found that people don't get the benefits from the liposomal one that they do with the IV. So when would you use glutathione apart from detox? And for listeners, the glutathione is the master antioxidant in the body. It's responsible for numerous different processes. Well, I mean, you know, if you look at specific conditions, I mean, it's quite well, it's quite well known, in like, especially things like Parkinson's. You know, Parkinson's has a great, has really beneficial effects for people with Parkinson's um, in, t- in terms of reducing their symptoms and ne- the neurological symptoms. It, it, neurological symptoms can, can be reduced quite nicely, actually, you know, with a lot of with a lot of um, <coughs> conditions, things like uh, motor neuron disease, uh, MS as well. Uh, it can be very useful as well for people with MS. Um, again, but I, I often do it in, in like you know heavy metal toxicity programs. I'm using high dose vitamin C and glutathione, and I find the patients that do the IVs get when we retest them get far quicker lowered heavy metal levels than those that don't do the ivs extremely interesting so you yeah, find it, it... It, can, it can be double the time I and mean, you know you can half the, i find you can half the time if you have an intense say 10 ivs like 10 ivs over say a couple of months mm-hmm. yeah and then you go say once a month thereafter for the rest of the year i find those patients can get very high mercury levels down in half the time than those that don't do the ivs it'll take the other people two years it'll take them one year and assuming this is a very safe way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there are other treatments out there in IV you can have. We could, we, we could do them if we wanted to, but we don't because I just think they're not as safe. You know, you've got options like DMPS in, in IV or DMSA in, in, in IV. But but I think that... Chelation think, therapies, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, we, we do use, we use oral, we'll use oral DMSA with patients and we use a very low dose orally with patients, but I haven't really gone with... Um, you know, IV, EDTA or DMSA or DMPS for patients. But just having looked at what other people are doing around the world, I just I just feel that it's at its safest doing it the way that we do it. Um, I quite like Joe Pizzorno's oral program, which is 300 milligrams of oral um, DM, um, DMSA every third day. And that's pretty, that's pretty sort of, you know, safe and uh, quite, I've never, have never had a patient ever have a reaction to that, that sort of level of dosing. Joe Pizzorno, he, he's the nat- naturopath in the US, isn't he, Dr. Joe Pizzorno? Yeah, he wrote with Michael Murray. He wrote, you know, the yes. text functional medicine, and he's he's written a lot of books. He's, he's a, and he founded Bastyr University, so he's yes. a bit of bit of a legend. <laughs>
And uh, moving uh, very smoothly, I think, into <laughs> into a, a, a particular area that I know you're interested in, but it's also quite controversial in some in some circles, and that is the the area of Helminth therapy. Can you explain to listeners what this is and or what conditions it's appropriate for? Sure. Um, I was aware of Helminth therapy about five years ago, and Helminths are a type of worm, and I, some of my some of the people I was following in the States were using them for treating patients with autoimmune disease, autism, uh, and allergy. And those guys were Dr. Sidney Baker, uh, who's one of the sort of forefathers of functional medicine. Yes. Um, and uh, William Parker at Duke University, Dr. Parker. And also more recently, uh, Dr. Yehuda Schoenfield, who's considered one of the leading experts in the world in autoimmunity based out of Israel. Um, and so I've been tracking the I've, I've been tracking the research and these guys for quite a while, and it's only sort of recently I just thought to myself, do you know what? I've got to got to get cracking with this. I've got to do it. Start using it on patients myself because you know these guys are getting great results, and I really need to do it. And I also read recently I read the book by sort of Moises Velasquez. I've got his surname now, but the book's called An Epidemic of Absence, which is probably again I mentioned it earlier, probably one of the best books I've ever read. And that really goes into all the detail and the research as to why it's beneficial. But a lot of it <coughs> comes from the hygiene hypothesis and the old friends sort of theory that we made ourselves super clean. We've got rid of all these all these bugs, made ourselves too clean. And as a result, when you look at the research, when we made ourselves super clean and we got rid of all the worms, we found there's been an epidemic of you know allergenic disease like you know hay fever and things like that but also autoimmune conditions such as Hashimoto's or MS or alopecia totalis or areata um, <clears throat> so the what we found is the the um, Sidney Baker refers to the treatment as being making a lot of sense because it's a has no risk or very limited risk Mm -hmm. if you've got more than 50% chance of being a benefit to the patient, it's good. C, it's relatively inexpensive. Um, and there's no, and there's very limited side effects, um, if any. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to, to at least try it with these patients. And the you have to continually sort of take the, um, the helmets every sort of two to three weeks. You can't see them, so they're they're microscopic. But you get it in like a, a saline sort of solution, and you add it with like a, a fatty medium, like coconut milk or dairy milk, if you drink dairy because it's absorbed better that way. Yes. Um, and you tend to start with maybe a, a colony, you know, about 30, 30 of the what does um Sydney Baker calls them little dudes. So you, you start with about <laughs> thirty of the little dudes, and then you just work up from there. And then kids and very sensitive people will use lower doses. Um, and you wait about three weeks and you just and you just keep you know upping the dose if you need to and and, ma and maintaining the number based on based on your symptoms um dr weinstock the american gastroenterologist he was one of the first to start using them and he had a lot of research in inflammatory bowel disease with it and very very good success and then more recently it's had a lot of very good success in a lot of uh conditions specifically autism uh and alopecia um and then also you've got um very good very good effects with them um, with ms as well um even in the uk the um, uh, nottingham university has been running a couple of trials using helminths as a means of treating people with ms yes um and i think they're looking for more candidates at the moment for their latest helminth trial actually um and also i was speaking to another nutritionist the other day and i was put onto her by someone else who told me you need to speak to her because she's been dealing with helminths and 
I spoke to her and she had MS herself and she's cured herself with helmet therapy from MS. So, you know, and, and also if people want more information, there's a humongous Wikipedia online and it's called Helminithic Therapy Wiki. Um, and there's so much information, you could be spending like a week reading it if you wanted to. Um, but yeah, there's an awful lot of information. But the, there's different helmets as well. You know, there's different different types of species that people are using. But I, I'm using the ones that, that William Parker, Yehuda Schoenfield, and Dr. Baker are using in America. And they're, and they're called HDCs. Now, don't ask me to tell you the Latin, what the HDC stands for off the top of my head, because I can't. <laughs> but you can look it up online. So I can never pronounce it. Um, but it's um, there's a lab in the UK that produces them. Um, and they are based in Lancaster or Lancashire. Uh, and the company, the website, the clues in the in the web address is biome biomerestoration.com. Um, and I, the idea is you're you know restoring the microbiome. Um, and they're they're a really nice company based up you know northern England. And it, it it not interestingly most of their business comes from the states. So there's not any not too many people use them in the UK. And I've only started using them in the last few months, last month or so. So I haven't really got any data at the moment, but. I'm very positive about about their use and the results I you know I, I anticipate us getting. It's an extremely exciting area and certainly something which I've never heard of prior to this conversation. Um, I know we sp- spoke about it a little bit beforehand, um, but is this what was it called? The Helminth Wiki, or um, Helminithic Therapy Wiki? <laughs> Helminithic Therapy Wiki. Okay, I will put that in the show notes so the listeners can have a look. Yeah. and certainly I will be as well. Yeah, I mean, in the I mean, it's the HDCs that we're using. I mean, in, in America and other places, the it's the pig whipworm that people, the porcine whipworm, a lot of people, more people are using. But mm-hmm. um, Sydney Baker and the people in the UK seem to say that actually, with the HDCs, you're getting far less side effects and uh, any issues with them, and they're much more easy to use for good people. So that's that's um, so I'm quite glad we've got access to this laboratory in the UK and we can use those with patients that need them. So what's the proposed mechanism of action? Because I know Dr. Alessio Fasano has done a lot of work on gut hyperpermeability, which we always talk about on this podcast, and it seems to precede a lot of autoimmune conditions or certainly associated with them. Does does the Hellman therapy work via this mechanism by healing the gut, as it were? Or is it No, I I don't think so. I think I think it's more more as it's modulating the immune system and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the clue of you know, the clue of the name of the UK lab, you know, biome restoration, it's in that it's clues in that title. And yes. I think it's it's effectively because the MRHA is re- is classed as a nutritional supplement, um, this 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 helmet at the moment by the MRHA, believe it or not. So uh, I would just view it as a bit like a probiotic, but one that actually resides in the gut and stays there well i say stay there you've got to keep topping it up uh, every few weeks it's it's not like um it's not like a parasite you know a parasite just occupies the body and burrows into all the different places in the in, in the body and in all different in some cases the brain and stuff with these they don't really they they form a colony but you've got to keep topping the colony up okay. uh, so they're not it's not like a pathogenic uh, parasite like i don't know giardia or something like that mm. it's a it's a beneficial worm um, in the same way that you know you have beneficial bacteria in a probiotic. I think it's very good that you've made that distinction there because I think a lot of people who may be f- familiar with helminths as they relate to pinworms might be thinking, why would I put a parasite inside my body? And 
you know, do we have to get rid of it after we ingest it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there is, there is some anecdotal um, co uh, comments by the, very rare circumstances, which I've heard from Sydney Baker. People can get some unwanted symptoms with the helmet, um, but in those cases, if people do get any symptoms they they, they don't like, um, it's a very simple three-day antibiotic course to get rid of the, your, you know, your colony, um, which obviously, which obviously means, you know, if you do have if you are enjoying, you know, having the helmet therapy, you can't really take antibiotics during that period because if you do, you've got to start again and get a new colony. This this can be used for multiple different types of conditions, as you've just illustrated. Are there any other, for lack of a better word, unusual techniques which you use which seem to be efficacious in the treatment of illness? Oh, unusual. We, we've had to be... As a clinic, we've had to be quite tenacious, um, and because we get most people we come to the clinic, they've been to so many places before they've been to us. Some of those places they haven't really—I would say—they haven't really grabbed the ball by the horns and used a very good integrative functional approach. And some mm -hmm. places have, and you know, some people come in saying they can't tolerate any supplements and can't tolerate this. So we have—we've had to stock various different ranges and stuff that generally no one else has got in the UK to try and um, treat these very sensitive patients. Um, but there's nothing, uh, we, we, we just use a very eclectic um, series of different uh, remedies or uh, or techniques, you know, often we'll refer out for certain techniques and we'll use things like things like family constellation therapy, um, at, which many people may not have heard of, or we'll use something called the journey technique. And again, we'll refer out to that. So we will refer out the sort of different disciplines that we don't have within the clinic. Yes. Um, but, but other than that, there's nothing that I would think that's too that's too esoteric that we do that you know, the, 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 the the audience may not have heard of, other than what we've mentioned. How do you see medicine evolving as new research emerges in this area? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good time for integrated and natural medicine. Uh, I think people are getting a little bit fed up with the current model, which is you know an acute care model trying to treat chronic health problems, and people want a different sort of model. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good period to be in this this area, and yeah, I mean I, I I don't know how much of a fan of Star Trek you are, but you know I or Star yeah. Wars. Okay, but, you know in Star <laughs> Trek, you know they've got them already these medical tricorders, but obviously not to the extent that they had them in in, in Star Trek. But I, I I genuinely believe in our lifetime, you know, people you'll be scanned with a medical tricorder. And you know, and they'll, that tricorder device will tell you what your gene mutations are, what nutrients you're deficient in, uh, what bugs you've got, what pathogens, what infections you've got, what toxins you've got, and then obviously, and, and who knows, maybe that device will even treat you as well. I I, I, I suspect that's available within our lifetime. Um, obviously, in Star Trek, it's done with what they call a hypo spray. Whether <laughs> <laughs> whether, whether we'll have something similar to a hyperspray, I don't know, but 